Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. Now I'm going to get around to doing the uh, bio uh, for today. Uh, I was, I'm doing this for Ari Elba, actually for Heather Elba, his wife. Uh, and this is in memory of her grandfather, Ezra Chaim, who learned or was connected with the Chabinarov, and I thought, you know, that's what I'll do. I'll connect the, the sponsor with the famous personality. And uh, I think this is a world that many aren't so familiar with, uh, the Shabinarov. Um So the Nifter's name, in whose memory we're doing this podcast, her grandfather and others, Heather's grandfather, is Ezra, Ezra Menchayim. And uh, they wrote he was born in Dombrov, which I'll talk about in a second. And he had Smicha from the Dombrov Rav and the Shabinarov. These are two brothers. These are among the biggest Gedolim before the war, before the Second World War in Galicia, which is, a, like I say, a part that's, that's not there, uh, that people don't know about. And then he moved eventually to the Lower East Side. That's how he survived, obviously. He came to the U.S. in the 30s. Now, he, he escaped. He got over here before the war. It was in the Lower East Side, and they had a deli and a catering hall, and they served a lot of poor people. That doesn't surprise me. The, 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 if it's a Talmud of these famous rabbis, that doesn't surprise me. Serve the name every Shabbos. Anyway, serve the Shabbos Shabbos Aliyah. Now, as I said before, I'm going to deal, or try to deal today, with somebody from a different area than I usually do. Uh, here we deal with modern Galicia. Although I did once the Kaja Glover, kind of sort of like from that area. <clears throat> um, and here's someone who lived, I would say, in my estimation, had four very distinct periods in his life, lived from the eighteen. He lived to be in his eighties. He's born in eighteen eighty one. He died in the mid sixties, like sixty four, sixty five, something like that. And uh, that means he lived in his eighties and a very tempestuous period. As you know, the twentieth century was not a good time necessarily from the physical point of view to live in Poland, especially eastern Poland, Galicia. On the other time, on the other hand, in some respects, it was a good time. So let's talk about that. Here we're dealing with. The Galicia Honors, as they say. This is a part of Poland that was different than the other parts of Poland because it was part of the Austrian Empire. In other words, when they divided Poland up and it stopped being a regular country back in the 1700s, so Russia took part and Prussia took part and Austria took part. And the part that Austria took over, the Austrian Empire, the Habsburgs, was what we call Galicia. And it's a long, it's like a long pickle. And the western half is, it's all part of Poland, and the ruling class was Polish, but the western half is really um, Polish, and the eastern half is Ukrainian, which is why today, places that I'm talking about are not in the country called Poland, but in the country called Ukraine, because Stalin, after the war, did radical surgery on the geography, gave Poland a sex change operation, and not without reason, and a lot of these territories no longer in the same um, countries. However, at that time, it was all Galicia, it was all Polish, 
and the Jews in Galicia are a distinct group, and there was a big Jewish population over there. So when we talk about Galician or Jews, you're really talking about a phenomenon from the 1770s to the First World War. Actually, <clears throat> when it was a, a distinct province by itself, separate in, in from the other parts of Poland. Now, Galicia, um, there's is very interesting and complicated externally and internally. From the external point of view, the Austrians ruled it, um, but uh, the Jews there, under the impact of Austrian rule, which was pretty cruel most of the time, until things changed, so uh, the Jews there split in the left and right. Uh, there were a lot of left-wingers who were anti-from, and the Haskalah was big there, and then other groups like that were big there in Galicia. There was also tremendous poverty. Uh, people starved to death in Galicia. But on the other hand, a lot of people were middle class and upper class, and they did okay. Uh, but the poverty was terrible. It caused a lot of girls to run away and assume a life of shame. <clears throat> this is notorious. That's why a ton of Jews, including Heather's family, escaped Galicia for economic reasons and came to America and countries like that. Notice when we say the Eastern European Jews, for example, moved to the West, moved to places like America, a lot, some were from from Poland, Lithuania, and those kind of things, and many were from Galicia, which is why you have a lot of Galicianos over here and a lot of shoals that are Galicianos. Uh, so there's certainly, the Zionist movement was very big in Galicia, but also it was the movement of assimilation of Polishism, you know? And uh, it's, it's strange. It's interesting for the historian of Jewish fights and cultural battles. Uh, what's interesting for our purposes is that for the first half, the Austrians were there from the 1770s to the First World War. So from 1772 to, let's say, 1872, it was bad, and then afterwards it was good. Isn't that funny? This is the Kaiser Franz Josef, the Emperor Franz Josef, who ruled from 1848 to 1916. So he was the ruler of Galicia for know, close to 70 years, a long time. In the first 20 years of his reign, he backed the policies that were anti-Semitic, and then he switched. He wasn't so anti-Semitic. actually pretty good to Jews, relatively speaking, and then they all look back on it as a golden era. So our hero was born in 1881 during the Franz Josef period, the golden years, if I can use that term, uh, of Galician Jewry. Now, I just talked about all the non-from. There also was a big from, especially the Hasidic movement, okay? Hasidus was gigantic in Galicia. There was plenty of misnagdim, but really the great majority was Hasidish. And many of the famous dynasties are Galician dynasties, either the founding or branches of them. Uh, we'll see that our hero, uh, Dober uh, Berisha Weidenfeld, that's the name, Weidenfeld, they were, um, he was not a Hasidish Rebbe at all, but he, but he was a big Hasid of a Rebbe. <laughs> you understand? Know which is a little strange to those who are not Hasidish. Like, if you know more than the Rebbe, why are you his Hasid? But it doesn't work like that. You understand? It doesn't work like that. Now, um, Galicia is a whole world. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe. That's why I hesitated to do this. But I'm going to plunge into it anyway. Here we are talking about the 1880s and 1890s, early 1900s. Um, the place had a very large Jewish population scattered all the place in these villages and towns. Uh, by the time we're talking about, it was clear that the left-wingers are trying to knock out Yiddishkeit. 
This provoked within Galicia a counter movement, right, of Haredim, especially the Hasidim. Uh, this is where the Hasidim were impressive because just by being in a Hasidic group, you already are organized. You understand? So the Rebbe can say everybody should do this, and Simon says they all do it. So that gives you a political power. So there were a lot of fights and battles between the from and the not from. I would say by the time you get to the time our hero was born around then, you know, everybody got tired of fighting and they said, let the from be from, the not from won't be. That's all. And each group flourished in its own way. And, uh, con- and therefore you had big Hasidic groups, but you also had very big learning over there. And uh, while there was a hamunam of a lot of Pashat Yidin, as they say over here, and, you know, plain Jews, there were nothing uh, learned or anything like that, but nevertheless were Hasidic. But you also had a very distinct elite. And our hero is at the top of the elite, a rabbinic learned elite that was always in Galicia. Uh, the whole, the, the big joke is the whole Litvish world is, is based on the Kitsos and the Mechas uh, Chinech and the Nesivas. These are all Galicianers. So all the people we associate with Lambdas were actually not born from Lithuania, from Galicia. That's a well-known part. Along with many others. So Galicia is a place where, among other things, you had Gedole, Hador, big time. Uh, we live in a Lithuania-centric kind of university, uh, you know, the art school and the other things like that. And the Lithuanian yeshivas became, you know, the most well-known and so forth. But there were... Contrary to popular belief, some very significant uh, and not a small number of Galtziano yeshivas, which were run in a different style. They weren't run in the Lithuanian yeshiva way. They had their own way. Uh, and in addition to what I just said, there were a lot of places, like our hero, where you just learned on your own without being in a yeshiva environment at the local synagogue, at the local, local base medish. Maybe with your parents, maybe with, with your uncles. That was another style of learning. And let me tell you, some big people came out of that system. So there's no yeshiva in the, uh, you know, Lithuanian sense. There's no mashkiach. There's no, uh, you know, snitch system and uh, musr shmuz and all that. And you do it anyway. <laughs> right? Now, by the way, it's not so well known, and I'll get to this a little bit later, in the same way the Lithuanian yeshivas developed into a movement as a counter left-wing phenomenon, See, it's not simply about learning Gemara, but it also has ideology with it. The same thing happened uh, a little bit later in Galicia, particularly in the early years of the 20th century before the Holocaust, and our hero is going to be at the center of this. So here we go. So this uh, this famous uh, uh, person was um, born in 1881 in Galicia, in, in eastern Galicia, I would say, towards the east. Uh, but he'll be a rabbi in Western Galicia, as we'll see. Now, his father was a very famous Talmud Chacham in his own, Kocham Yaakov, it's called, in Rimlov, which uh, is like a suburb. <coughs> Let me see. That'd be a suburb of uh, of Tarnpol, I think. The father and the sons will all be rabbi, rabbis of, of suburbs. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the father was uh, in the suburb of Tarnable. Tarnable is a big city with 20,000 Jews. But uh, Rimbalov is nearby. 
And Chavin will be near Krakow, which is a big city, but Chavin is not. And his brother will be Dombrov, which is right near, um, what is that? This right near Tarnov, which is a big city. Now, maybe these names don't mean anything to you. I can't help it. If you want to know history, you have to have a fairly good grounding in historical geography. You get it? It's, it's simply, otherwise, you don't, you, you don't have your Dianberg line. Now, we can't require everybody to go get maps, but you want to know something? Today, you have the internet. In some respects, it's easier. Like when I was young, you simply had to get a hold of the books that had the, the historical geography. You know, what it looked like in the 1800s, what it looked like in the 1500s, and so forth. And if you don't have a good yacht in that, it's like having Bacchus in Gomorrah. You understand? If you don't have a yacht in that, you can't really go anywhere. <clears throat> uh, if I just rattle off names, I'm well aware that they don't mean anything to people. But I'm relying on the more diligent of the listeners who care about this. You don't have to care, but if they care about this, they'll do a little homework and they'll go online and they'll look at maps of Galicia in the 1800s and even later, and perhaps it'll help you make sense out of something. After all, in America, we rely on everybody realizing where Lakewood is, where Muncie is, where Baltimore is, where Cleveland is. You know, more or less we do, right? So uh, that's how it goes in Europe also, especially in places that are not so well known. Now, as I said before, our hero was born in this town. His father was a big Tom Chacham, a uh, very big Tom Chacham. And the Galtzianers were different in that they had super bikias, okay? And that's who our hero will be also. When I say super bikias, in the usual Lithuanian yeshivas, most of the time, you have a fairly narrow thing where you, you master, you know, a certain number of what's called yeshiva shemesechtas, especially before the Dafyomi got popular. And, of course, a person learning, and you uh, know, uh, hopefully, your basic Roshonin, and um, not the obscure ones, and you know a couple of Achronin, you know, some of the famous ones, you know, the Yehuda, you know, Chassam Sofer, uh, you know, Rabbi Kivager, of course, you know, things like that. But not every, I don't want to use the word Tom, Dick, and Harry, but you know what I mean, <clears throat> not every Tom, Dick, and Harry, who wrote a Shalas and Shubha Sefer or Achronisha Pirish on something like that, you know, so-and-so, the kind of thing you go into a bookstore today and, you know, somebody come out with a new Pirish on Bubba Kamba, like, I ain't got the time for that, you know. In the Galicia, they said you do. <laughs> and the big people, if you were from the elite, you knew the Achronim by heart. You get it? You're familiar with all the Shalas and Shubas, all the Achronish stuff, as well as the Rishon, of course. So it's unusual, Bikias. I remember, and, and, and therefore... You pick up your lumdus in that way, the Savaras, because what in the regular yeshiva world somebody works on and has Haravanya and comes up with a chiddush and all the rest of it, uh, usually it's not his chiddush. Notice it is, he came up with it on his own, but somebody already came up with it beforehand, but some obscure Akron or whatever. I remember, maybe I've said this story before, my good friend um, Rabbi Shabalski told me, and he's getting up there. Uh, he should have a full shalema, but he was in Erez around the 40s, and I think he happened to be, if I remember the story correctly, he was somewhere when Aaron Cutler first came here in 41 or 42, and gave some public cheer to sort of wow everybody, and he was sitting, this Rabbi Shalosky, my friend, who was a bachar at that time, he was sitting next to the famous Rabbi Leiter from Pittsburgh, who was a Galicianer, and when he's going in, it was a total recall, the famous Bucky, and Rabban Cutler, this is what story told me, you know, presented this Kiddush and that Kiddush, was like, this is brilliant, that's brilliant, and Rabbi Leiter is sitting next to Shavalski and saying, 
That's uh, you find that in such and such shalos and shuvah sefer. You find this in all now obscure ones. You get it? So Rabbi never heard of these or went into those. It's not what he was into. Uh, he could, but it's not what he was into. And so he figured that chiddush out on his own. And here's the lighter saying, "No, that's in Chavetzel Zacharon, and that's in the this thing, and that's in Marish Engel, and you know all that sort of thing." So it's hard to come up with the chiddushim when you know you yourself have already heard it all because you've seen all the achronim and all the rest of it. That's the world that our hero grew up in. So we're at the spitz at the very top of the learned elite in Galicia, and these guys are very impressive. His father was one of these, uh, you know, as they see, super big Talmud Chachamim, who was a rabbi in a, in a suburb of Tarnopol. Uh, the father, therefore, supervised the sons. He had uh, uh, Nachum and uh, our hero, uh, Dov Bear, and uh, both of them became famous uh, rabbanim. Uh, big, I mean, big rabbis in Galicia. Uh, here we are in the 1880s, 1890s, that was a relatively good time for the Jews in, in Galicia. I'll tell you again, I knew my children Rabbi Hertzberg, and who knew the Shabinarov. And uh, Rabbi Hertzberg was a Galicianer, born in 1894. Boy, the whole life he was taught all the good old days in Galicia. He meant the good old days before the First World War. Not before the Second World, before the First World War. And in some respects it was, because the government under Franz Josef kind of left you alone. That's all the Hasidim wanted. That's all the from Just leave us alone. The government was pretty fair in those years. It was like a golden era in some respects. I, I remind you, there was terrible poverty and all that. It wasn't all light and shine. But in many respects, it was. You know, the government gave Jews jobs. They didn't discriminate against people because they're Hasidish. There was a growing economy if you knew how to take advantage of it. Uh, it was It was good, okay? And you could be as firm as you wished. And that's all these uh, firmies wanted. And so, you have to go to public school or anything like that, and he didn't. So his father, who was a super Eloy, saw that his two sons were also super Eloys, which is satisfying. And he himself taught them. So they didn't go to yeshivas, as we would say today, or to day schools. This is the Galician or old system. You learn at home with the father. Uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but I mean, seriously. You know, you learn a lot on your own. The father gives you bechina. It's that kind of thing. Remember, they're all geniuses over here. And the father died when he was young. And uh, like 13 or something like that. And uh, his mother, who was a Talmud Chacham. <laughs> here you have, you know, the world of yesterday. You had these uh, Talmud Chacham, not, not a feminist, but she picked it up somehow or other. And uh, my favorite story is... <laughs> These are Galatianos, said he talked with the Galatiano Yiddish, you know, so Umain instead of Amain and so forth. Budich. And so, how's it go? I saw this in the book. They're talking about a Shidduch. And remember, she was a very learned woman. Uh, she was Gemara, I don't know how. And this is the mother of our hero. And it was a question of a Shidduch. And the girl came from a rich family, I think. And they suggested a certain guy who's going to be an Eloy, etc. And the girl uh, said, I want to see a photo of him, a picture of him, which is very radically modern in those days. Ooh, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, today, immediately, you know, go on the internet. Ooh, it was terrible. There's no Facebook at that time. And should you agree to send the photo of the proposed chosen 
to the girl. And she was a old school time. She said no. And she quoted the Chumash. But she would say, Now, literally, that's Lavan saying, it's not done at Lo Kameno, he says to Yaakov, to give the younger one before the older one, Tsiira. But if you speak in Galsiana Yiddish, so Loyasa Kindum Kamaini, it's not done over here. Losis Hatsiro, like Tsuro, like a photo, a picture. Losis Hatsuro, Lifne Habachura. But it comes out Hatsiro, Lifne Habachira. Which means she was very witty. So she made sure that he stayed in learning. She wanted her kids to grow up as Gedoliadar, which they did. So she was like very religious in that way. And she had the brother, his older brother, Nochum, learn with him. And so some, here's a guy that did not go, he became an Eli without ever going to Yeshiva. That's my point. Without ever going to Yeshiva. Uh, and, but in other words, you learn up everything. And this is the world of Chazara. Um, he became famous, as all these Gedolim do, for constant Chazara. You, you go over 10 times, 100 times, 50 times, 60 times. I'm Really? 200 times, 300 times. So no, there's all no Shasa and Poskim and Rishonim and Achronim, like one of the great Bekim of all time, you know. Um, you know, these obscure farm Tosis, Yushalmi, and whatever, you name it. Now, that means that you're now, let's say, 20 years old. Um, actually, he got married when he was 19, so he got married in 1900 to a rich girl. Uh, well, not exactly. He married a girl, that's not exactly true. But it sort of is. This is the old school. He was obviously a young guy, 19. He's an Eloy. Uh, he's a Hasidish. Now, what does that mean? His father was a big... These are Rishoner Hasidim. You understand? The Rishoners. So the Rishoner Rebbe ran away and became Sadiger Rebbe. Ran away from Russia. I don't think I ever did him. That's a Gansa story. You know, uh, the Rishoner Rebbe was one of the big Hasidic Rebbe. He died at the age of 50. He didn't live long. And he had an empire of Hasidus, huge number of followers in Tsarist Russia. Uh, remember, I just told you Galicia was not was part of the Austrian Empire, not the Russian Empire. North of Galicia, over the border, is the Russian Empire, and the Jews obviously had it a lot harder in the Russian Empire than under the Austrian Empire. While the Jews in the Austrian Empire and Galicia were under Franz Josef, who was considered a Malach. I mean. Like I said before, I heard speak. Do you, oh, they still speak about him. It was the golden years. Uh, I saw online. Uh, in fact, I use it in one of my. I'm always looking for European movies online because then sometimes they have good clips you can use for my lectures that I do in Baltimore. You know, because I always do a PowerPoint together with it, and you know, any maps and movies and things like documentaries or whatever. And they made a TV series or something like that in Czechoslovakia, I think, called The Radetzky March, a famous novel by Joseph Roth. And it's all about the Austrian Empire and Franz Josef. And they have a scene there where he's going through a Galician village. And it was very accurate. And uh, it was a movie, you know. But the emperor is going through a village. And all the Jews are there, bowing their heads and taking off their hats and things like that. This really what it was like. This really was like. And I will tell you something. I have a guy in my show. Should be well, and Mr. Buchwalter, who's in his 90s, and his father was a Russia coal 
you know, way back, literally 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, in uh, one of these little towns in Galicia. And he said that the train passed through and the Jewish community, as they used to do, would go out and greet the emperor on the train with a safer Torah. That's an old Jewish custom going back to way back when. And the Kaiser got off the train to kiss the safer Torah. Yeah. Notice he has respect for Jewish religion. Now, in Russia, you had the Tsars of Russia, a bunch of mumsers, and it's the exact opposite. So the Rishadur Rebbe once had a musser bumped off in the time of Nicholas I. Um, you know, let's put it this way. They found a guy at the bottom of the river. <laughs> okay? He had an accident. And you, and these are Hasidim in the 1830s, I think it was. And they, you know, bribed everybody around, you know, the local police, all the rest of it. Somehow or other, the case got to the to the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas I, who was a momser and a half. And he got obsessed on this. And by the time it's over, he made this a priority of the Russian FBI. And they really went after Russian Rebbe. Who was as guilty as him? And the Hasidim bribed everybody. So it was a battle between the, the, the desire of the Tsar to arrest the Rebbe and send him to Siberia versus the ability of the Hasidim to bribe their way through the Russian system. By the time it's over, the original Rebbe had to flee Russia in the middle of the night and cross into Austria. And they also lied and did all kinds of things, but it turned into Saudi Gear. So Galicia became a big place of the original dynasty. And our hero was from family to Hasidim of the original son, one of the sons, Hussein, doesn't matter. Now, so here's somebody who's a Hasid, and I mean a real chassid, you know, you go to the Rebbe, you chef Bruchnius. I'm serious, I'm not being funny. And tremendous, uh, you know, uh, inspiration. But he lived by himself somewhere else and just learned all day long and became one of these people who loves to talk and learning with the other big rabbis. And uh, I believe he got smichel maybe from the base. It's all cool. Maybe it was his brother. There were some big non-chassidic giant geonium over there and these guys used to go and talk to them and learning. They had smeaker on them. And so our hero, when he was 19, uh, still living in the good world, the first 35 years of his life was the good world, uh, marries this girl. Her father was a rov in uh, Chibin, uh, which is, like I say, a suburb of, uh, it's 11 miles from Krakow, you know. So Krakow is a big Jewish city. But Chibin is a small suburb. And I think the father-in-law died not long afterwards. Um, so he can't just sit and learn all day long. So what do you do now when you're 21, 22, 23, and very brilliant? So naturally, a lot of people offered him positions as Rabbonus or whatever, and he didn't want to do that um, because some people just like learning all day long. Uh, but the mother, in other words, the father-in-law had been a rub in the town, and the old school system was that you gave a salary, but you also gave the Rav, like, um, what shall I say, like a certain monopoly or two. Now, you gave, you gave him a chance for him to make money on his own, not from the salary. So in this case, it was the coal business. Um, that area, Krakow, what we call Western Galicia, is a lot of coal mines. At that time, the coal was, this is before the oil, the coal was the big deal. And the long and the short of it is that our hero, who really is spending 24-7 learning, but now is a married man, as children. So his father-in-law died. So the mother-in-law gave him, notice it's her, it's her daughter. The mother-in-law gave him um, this coal um, franchise, which basically involves 
um, paperwork. In other words, you're an agent for the coal mines, so you find people who want to make orders, and, you know, you take the orders and you send it to the factory, so you don't have to do any of the schlepping. It's a melacha in the key of a kala. You can make a lot of money. This is like being in the energy business in those days. And he did make a lot of money. So for the next, uh, I don't know, 10, 12 years of his life, 15 years, he was very rich, a gigantic Tamil Um He didn't want to be a rabbi because that's the Rambam system. Let's put it this way. You get you make a lot more Kiddush Hashem and you're much more impressive if you know Shas and Poskim Roshan Rachmanim and you don't need nobody's money, you can, the opposite. You're the giver. You're the gvir. Especially in the early 20th century. People say, oh, the rabbi's taking money, this and the other. His guy don't take no money. He doesn't need no money. He can do like Abraham to the king of Sodom. I can buy and sell you ten times over. And therefore I can do whatever I would. So people are more impressed with you. And they'll respect you more. So I'm talking about a kid Hashem. They'll respect you more. Because you're not a rabbi. <laughs> you're a businessman. And on top of the businessman, you're a posek and you know uh, uh, everything by heart. And, you know, it's, it's like that. So this is what happened. So he spent a good 10, 15 years, something like that. So this would take you to the First World War. So I just talked about somebody who lived in a good world, as far as he's concerned. He's not from the poor. He's from the opposite of the poor. Um, because he was a genius and he married a, a from rich, or uh, not rich, but opportunities to be rich, and he became a big veer, which is not a common story. Now, uh, that means if he's born in 1881 and World War I starts in 1914, so he was 33 years old when the war broke out. Well, as a supplier of coal, he wasn't drafted. You understand? So he had a good World War I, if you follow what I'm saying. In other words, he lived near Krakow. The front lines never got quite there, so it was safe. No, it's not like it's not like Eastern Galicia, like Bells and place that which were overrun by the Russian army and they killed the Jews and terrible and this and that and the other. And the part he was in the Western Galicia, so you know the Russians never got there. And so in 1914, 15, 16, 17, and 18, those four years, Etzel you know he actually was making money hand over fist because during wartime you definitely need uh, energy supplies, you know coal. He was actually helpful for the Austrian war effort. So now he's 35, um, actually uh, 37 years old. And then when the war ended, the business crashed uh, for various reasons. And then all of a sudden, he went from being a rich man to not. Okay? It's around 1919, 1920. Now, also, when the war crashed, when the war ended... The Austrian Empire ceased to exist. Franz Josef died at the age of 86 in 1916. And two years later, the war was over and the Austrian Empire disintegrated. And so Galicia became part of the New Republic of Poland. Uh, the New Republic of Poland was much more anti-Semitic than the Austrian Empire had been. And the Jews went from a great existence to a much lesser existence. Now, it wasn't Hitler at all, but a great existence and a much lesser existence. <coughs> so here's somebody... From his late 30s, I just finished like one tkuf of his life. Right? It was a gvir, a rich guy. Uh, you know, it's it's a suburb of Krakow, which was a major center. And so, this is a guy who's learning 24-7. When I say learning 24-7, I 
I don't mean only he learned by himself. The opposite. He liked to go to base medishes, talk with guys and learning. He would come to Krakow a lot of times for business and um, stop in a local yeshivas, base Bati midrash, and hock and learning with the people at a high level. He would give, you know, everybody knew he was a super Eloy. He would give shiurim there, but it's a completely different thing. Imagine what I'm about to say. It's a completely different situation if you tell me, I don't know, one of these uh, richy rich guys. You don't see this too often. <laughs> uh, I'll use Baltimore language. Let's say some really rich guy in Baltimore comes to give a sheer clawly once a week in their Israel, right? Or something like that. I'm like, uh, you don't see that. At least I don't, <laughs> right? Or in Eretz some uh, multi-multi-millionaire uh, comes in to give a high-level sheer. I'm not talking about the sheep is kissing up to you and letting you talk so you can get money out of them. That I understand. I mean, the guy is bigger than the Rosh Hashiva. But he also has to be happens to be a very successful business person. You don't see that much. Uh, so he had a great life until then, as far as he's concerned. You understand? He had a great life. But then, things got more complicated. And what do you do now that you're broke? And so, uh, he had to take a position as a rabbi. And he became the rav in the city where he had lived. But until now, he'd been a multimillionaire. Now, he's just a rov. And I'm sure it was very bitter on them. But he did it. And on the other hand, this is 1920, actually 1923, by the time this whole process exhausted itself. So you're somebody, by the time, of fifth, by the time you're, uh, you're 40, right? In your 40s, you take a change of life. Uh, and then starts the interwar period, the 1920s and 30s. In the Republic of Poland. So in the one hand, of a community, a whole city. Uh, I would imagine a city like that would be 10,000 people, 8,000 Jews, something like that. So that's not something. But he made a tanai that uh, he wants to, the, like the old way, which is that the, the city, the community should support yeshiva. Not a big one, but yeshiva. And they agreed. And so he set up a yeshiva for uh, Mitsuyanim, as we'd say today. And here he found, let's put it this way, he was a natural magachir. That's what I get from everything I've seen. He was a, you know, he was a natural machanach. You understand? He liked to hack with guys, with boys, teenagers, young kolo types, that sort of, you know, he, he was a chevraman, but always with a great dignity and, uh, uh, and sensitivity you see all the stories about him are like that. You know, he understood where people are holding. Uh, and I say he wanted to yeshiva for Mitsuyana that'll know, you know, be super became. You know, I walk down the hall and I see you and I say like this, all right, what's the third line in the rush? What does the rush say over here? What does the Minchas say over there? What is it? You forgot a prima gada? How can you forget a prima gada? You know, that kind of thing. And he attracted. Now, the interwar period is very interesting. Uh, there was... As I said before, just like in Lithuania, there was a realization in the 1920s and 30s that the Zionism is growing and the, the Bundes is growing and all the rest of it. And so you need yeshivas as a, like a counter-modern sort of phenomenon. So all the Hasidic rabbis um, went into the business of setting up networks of yeshivas all over Galicia. Um, the main one was Babov, but he's not the only one. There were networks of yeshivas. 
and uh, our hero, he did one also. He made a Shabin. It was like one of the good ones. And his brother, Nachum, who was also a very big rabbi. I'm just not talking about him today, but he was also a very big person. He has a Shalos and Shuvas Chazon Nachum. He did the same thing in his town in Dumbraba. Uh, I'll tell you again, which is near, um, what is it again? It's near Tarnov. And, uh, you know, same idea. And the point is, you try to, let's, like we say in America today, whoever goes to Yeshiva is going to stay from. Whoever doesn't go to Yeshiva is, is not. And so you can be sure that our hero uh, tried to persuade everybody to whoever he could send your son to Yeshiva. Now, don't necessarily send it to my Yeshiva, because mine is only from Mitzayonim. But we'll find a place for your son. You know, a parent doesn't want to hear that. But okay. Okay. In addition to what I said, he was a rov. And um, he's a bucking shulchan and halacha. And he becomes one of the big Shalos and Shubas type guys. I mean, one of the people you send Shalos to. And so that became one of his specialties also. And this is very God's honor. You don't just learn theoretically. You also learn halacha ma'isa. That's their criticism of the Litvaks. Uh, which is a criticism. You know, you have to know the sugis and Paskin from the sugis, And um, he became one of these guys, like I told you before, the Kaja Glover or the others, a whole crop of people, Nachem Zemba, he was a Mechutim with Nachem Zemba, who were the big uh, Poskin in Poland, which is the largest Jewish community anywhere. It was three and a half million Jews almost. Uh, 3.3 million Jews, uh, which is why there was so much anti-Semitism. And he spent the 1920s and 30s he had a grand old time. Uh, yeah, he had to raise money like all the people do. But the yeshiva worked. And he had guys. And like I said before, he was a natural for Chinuch. And so he formed very close bonds with his students. Uh, very from, um, you know, no limon and all that kind of thing. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, like people write about him a lot. They may, you, know, you know, the world is full of people in, in schools and yeshivas that form a kesher with a rabbi. And those who do not, there's more of the latter than the former. But those who form a kesher, that's like a very precious thing. Okay, that's who he was. Now, as a rav, he attained. You know, he, the guy like I'm talking about is, is always looking. Let's put it this way: not to do anything dumb and stupid, and to always make a kedushah and be careful what you say. Now, uh, I'll tell you a story. I think this is how I put things together. Uh, the There was a case of Goyim, some rich Polish businessmen, that they had a big fight in, in Chosha Mishmah in business matters. And it's in the 30s, in Krakow, which is near the town. And they couldn't settle it. Like the Polish courts were all confused about it. It must have been a sticky case. And meanwhile, you're spending all the money away on the lawyers. And so, I don't know exactly how it happened, but it ended up saying, take it to Rabbi Weidenfeld, the Jewish guy, because he's very good in judging financial cases. He had a reputation for Chosha Mishpat, among other things. And they did. And he studied the case very carefully, as you would imagine he would. This is very rare when I'm talking about that. The guy should go to a Jewish rabbi, especially in the 30s. And everything happened good in the end. He came out with a ruling that all the sides, including the Polish courts, agreed was a good ruling. And he got a lot of positive feedback out of this. Now, this gave him a, a certain 
fame, which is not necessarily something good, but maybe it is, because, um, as I said before, the 1920s and 30s was the period before the Holocaust, uh, a very interesting period. Um, let me be clear about this. The town where he was the rabbi had all types. You know, this is the 20s, so you have a lot of Zionists of all kinds of different sorts. You have a lot of secularists of all kinds of different sorts. You have a lot of assimilation Jews of all kinds of sorts. You also have the Frum, you have the Hasidim, you also have, by the way, the Mizrahi, not, all, all different types. And if you're Rav in Galicia, you can't be like the Satmar, you understand? You have to deal with everybody with all the different groups. So he was good at that. There was no such thing as being a successful communal rabbi without realizing you know, all these different sides. <coughs> um, now, he got this fame. That means it's good and bad. On the one hand, you're famous. On the other hand, the anti-Semites know who you are. And um, his name was already in, in papers, you know, uh, a famous Talmudist. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is it comes 1939, and... Uh, you know, none of these Polish Jews are ready for the Second World War. That's a separate schmooze. And Hitler invades uh, Poland uh, on the 18th of El, you know, 12 days or so before Rosh Hashanah. <clears throat> the Nazi newspaper had already put a series of pictures of big rabbis saying these are the arch uh, devils, you know. I think it was the Ger Rebbe was there, and, you know, some other, Belzer Rebbe maybe, you know, that sort of thing. And the Chabinarov, <laughs> he's the number one Talmudist. I think because of that case that he issued in the po between the two Polish people, uh, and you know somebody showed him. He said, "You're, you're." It's like you would say like this: "Cast, you're on the Nazi internet." You know, it's like <laughs> you don't want to be there. And so this actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise, in my opinion, because that means as soon as the war started, he said, "I'm getting out of here." And he um, and and the Germans made a blitzkrieg, you know, and they ran through Poland pretty quickly. He immediately jumped on um, on a wagon, and uh, with his wife and daughter or something like that. Uh, some of his kids left behind, and they were taken killed uh, somewhere or other in the war. And on a horse and wagon, and they start moving east to run away from the Germans. And it's very famous. They travel on Shabbos. They travel on Rosh Hashanah. In fact, I, remember, I forget who he bumped into another guttle doing the exact same thing on Rosh Hashanah. And each guy said, well, I, I'm happy to see you're doing the same thing. I feel better. Because you can't help have a guilty conscience for driving you know, in a wagon on Rosh Hashanah. But on the other hand, it's the Holocaust. So in other words, you certainly have a heter. And he was able to get far enough away from his town. Now, his town, Shabin, is in western Galicia. In fact, it's 11 miles from Krakow, that means that if you go to east, this town is west of Krakow, so if you live in Chabin, you go 11 miles to the east and you're in Krakow. Guess what's 20 miles to the west? Auschwitz. Auschwitz team. Which, by the way, also had an important Jewish community before, you know, Hitler, and uh, had a yeshiva there, Bambach, I mean, Auschwitz team back in the day was a well-known Jewish community. I'm sorry to say. I mean, I, you know what I mean when I say I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry to turn it out as it did. Now, uh, but that ain't the place for a Jew to hang out in 1939, right? You want to get the heck out of there. 
And so the way it worked was Hitler invaded the country. It took a week or two for the Germans to go through everything. Within X number of days, I think after a week or two, Stalin invaded the other half. This was called the Hitler-Stalin Pact, the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, and they divided the country between them. So if you're Jewish, like our hero, you're saying like this, I want to get the heck out of the Germans, I'll run to the Russians. I mean, what choice do you have? And so he was going on that horse and wagon eastward to get beyond his own, where the Germans are, to get where the Russians are, and he did. So he escaped. The um, rest of his family did not. Um, his brother, for example, in Dombrov, didn't run away. Um, I don't think he did. Maybe he did, but he was caught. I think that's what it is. He ran away, but was caught. So you have to be lucky enough to run away and, and make it over the border before the Germans get there. I think the brother was caught at the border. So he had bad luck. Uh, these were very from people, very refined. I told you before, this is the top of the rabbinic elite. So you have Midos. It's important to know. You know what I'm saying? You have tremendous Midos. You have tremendous uh, fine kite. Uh, the the old-fashioned Jewish uh, refinement is the best word I can think of. I'll tell you where I'm going with this. The brother, how did he die? Nochem. The Chazon Nochem. How did he die? Uh, he was caught at the border, and the Germans took away his tefillin, and like threw it on the ground. He like freaked out, and he picked it up, and he threw it on the ground again, and he died from like heart attack, heartbreak, at the bizarre of the tefillin. That's a very refined you know, nature. You get it? You can't survive if you're like that. It, it, you know, you have to be tougher. Now, I, I'm not talking. You know what I'm saying. Now, I'm going to tell you something interesting. Uh, because our hero eventually wrote his safer in the 30s called the Dovid Misharm Nesses Shalos and Chubas. Uh, and then he wrote other parts after the Second World War. Uh, in now this is funny to me. Uh, there's a famous Shiloh that was in a lot of Svarim in the 30s, and in this country, Igor's motion in the 40s, and that was the famous Shiloh about taking film to a hospital if they're going to burn it. Because, let's say a guy had some kind of Mr. Beckes, um, typhus or something like that, cholera. So he went to hospital. But one of the things they do is, let's say you make it, uh, you survive. They'll take all your stuff and burn it. That was the, the medical policy. So if the guy takes his film to the hospital, they're going to burn it. On the other hand, you're supposed to wear film every day. So what do you do? Right? That's the Shiloh. And um, this was on all the Shiloh and Shiloh's books in the 30s. It was uh, it must have popped up in Poland. Uh, and Chazan Nochem says all the Rabban in Krakow area writing about it. And uh, Ramosha Feinstein in America, I forgot about this, Rabbi Marwick, I was walking with the other, uh, reminded me about this. In the Igris Motion, the first part, the first volume, he talks about this. And uh, what's interesting is, Ramosha Feinstein says, uh, since you know the film is going to be destroyed, don't wear the film. That's all, leave it at home. Don't bring it. And he was criticized by this. If you get uh, that book, Psychas Egros, which I think is really cool, uh, you know, which has all the crit critiques of the uh, Igris Moshe. Uh, boy, they go into town on him and that guy Mane Igros and all this stuff. Boy, oh boy. Uh, he was strongly criticized for this psaac, which is funny to me 
Because, uh, in other words, what you're saying then is you, you, you wear the film and then get them burned. That's what happened. Now, I want to tell you something funny. The Moshe Feinstein was asked this question in 1944. If you look at the, um, at the you know, uh, Igris Moshe, the first volume, it's from 1944. So obviously it was the case in America. Um, you know, he's possibly for real. And like I say, he has a couple of simonim on this, and Rabbi Gifter criticized him when he was a young man. It's a whole interesting subject by itself. But in Europe, and, you know, Ramosha being Ramosha, he don't know about, you know, this Galtzian or Chazon Nochem or one of these things over there. You know, he's like a Shalas and Hashonim type person, as we know. Um, but there were a lot of um, big Polish rabbis, Galtzian particularly, who wrote about this one way or the other. <clears throat> I thought it was in the Kajah Glover. I just pulled my copy. I don't see it. I still remember it. It should be there. But it is in the Dovid Misharm. It is in the in the um, Shalos and Shuvah Sefer of our hero, who published it in the 30s. Okay, and he said the same thing Ramosha Feinstein did, just for different reasons. Okay, um, he said the guy should not take the the throne to the to the hospital because um, he's going to cause him to be destroyed. Uh, he had a whole series of heters. It's in the number 99 in the first volume. Can't do it. And he says over here also, I'm just reading what it says in my copy, and I repeat, this is a safer that was published ooh, in the 30s. Okay? In the 30s. Before the war. And uh, he says over there, Shuv nishlachli atshuva me'achi agon me'dambrava Notice my, I saw the Chazon Nochem, my brother's uh, Shuba Sefer, Sheif Ben Yezer, and he, Umas Konosu Kidvarenu. He agrees with me. The Ain Lo Lanich Tfilin, Achrei, Shalizay Bizoin Godolzeu. Don't do that to the Tfilin, because the Tfilin will be destroyed. And you shouldn't do that. Uh, now, what's really funny is I saw um, a, where is it here? It's a website. Uh, that's the trouble the, on the uh, on the Chazan Nochem. And they tell this famous story where he got killed. He died when he saw the Bizoin of the Tfilin. And then the guy writes over here, Ochi Rabdo Berish Nisha Achod Saras Shachoch the Yisrofa Bissim Tipol Refui. The child I just told you that the sick person is going to have, it's going to be burned when it's all over. Imutul Havi Tfilin. Rabdo Berish Pasek Shaadif Lahavi Lo. It's better to wear the tefillin. That's not true. I just read it for you. It's a good story, but I don't think it's true. And he said that even though his brother Paskind, like Ramosha Feinstein, don't bring the tefillin there because it'll end up being destroyed. He said, you can't go by my brother because he was Super connected to Tfilin. He had such a refined soul that he was like Makusher, if I can use that term, with the Tfilin. The, the thought of any damage or bizillion Tfilin was so uh, shocking that he was just emotionally uh, couldn't reconcile him, himself to uh, doing anything that would cause the Tfilin to be damaged in any way. And the proof is he died in a heart attack when they saw Germans throw the Tfilin on the ground, you know. It's a good story, but it just doesn't seem to match. Because I'm holding, as I'm speaking to you, I'm holding the Dovah Misharm right in front of me. And he, and he said the same thing Ramosha did, and so did the brother. Uh, so, 
even though there are many poskin differently, but oh, that's fine, but I'm just telling you, this is how the story goes. But this idea of the refinement, that, you know, a nefesh hayofa can't stand to see these bizionas. <clears throat> you know, it's not the same thing. My father had a brother-in-law who was not from in Lithuania. In other words, the two of them married sisters. And without going through all the details, they ended up in concentration camp. And when they ended up in concentration camp, in 44, whatever it was, uh, they, when they came there, they were relatively healthy. Um, but when this brother-in-law, who had been brought up very refined from an upper-middle-class family, always was very, you know, silver spoon in his mouth, in the best sense of the term, when he saw the concentration camps, he checked out, he died within a day. And simply because, you know, he just didn't want to live. You know, there's things like that. Where prison says, I'm just out of here. The, 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 the reality is so big, that itself brought him to death. Now, what the medical reason was, I don't know, you know, you could say it's a heart attack, maybe it's a stroke. It, it almost doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Because what generated that thing was almost like a, a suicide wish. Some people are like that. So that guy did it in a, in a, from the concentration camp point of view. And this one, the, the concentration did it from a, like a from uh, Edelkite point of view. There's a lot of people that happened to. Now, in the case of our hero, he made it to the other side with the Russian zone, and he ended up in Lemberg, Lvov, and um, now he's under Stalin, and he will spend World War II under Stalin, which is a different experience. Uh, now, that's terrible to live under Stalin, but it's better than living under Hitler. And, um, you know, as soon as he came there, Started giving shiurim, and that's what, that's who he is. You can't help it, you know. He couldn't help what it was. But the way Stalin worked was at the NKVD, and they find that whoever's a frummy or whatever, and all those who were like refugees from the Hitler part, at one point or another, especially if you're from, uh, at a certain point in 1941, Stalin took over this whole thing area in 1939. Uh, there's a book, by the way, uh, Lesser of Two Evils, I think it's called, by Professor Dove Levin, which is all about what happened to the Jews in this whole territory that Stalin chopped in the, towards the end of 1939, which he held until Hitler invaded in 1941, in June of 41. Uh, and, you know, it was, uh, let's put it this way, for the firm it was bad, although at least he weren't being killed the way Hitler was killing everybody systematically. Uh, now, Lambert Lvov is in Ukraine. You see, it was part of Poland, but the Poles dominated Ukrainian, the, the mass of the population were Ukrainian. Oh boy, that's a bad group. Our hero got lucky because at a certain point, the Soviets, the Stalin, saw this, were deporting everybody to Siberia. Anybody's the slightest uh, issue. Uh, now this is like in 1940 or 41, I forget exactly when it was. They thought it's terrible, which it was. After all, would you like to go to Siberia and work in a slave labor camp under Stalin? They did not realize they're actually lucky. You follow what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying? Those who stayed behind were taken over by Hitler in June 41, and then the Ukrainian population itself tore these people in half. That's not an exaggeration. They did like Khmelnytsky. They ripped open babies, and they did unbelievably bad things. Uh, you think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. If you care, if you have the stomach for it, you go to Yad Vashem, so I see what happened in Lemberg in those areas, but especially Lvov in those types of areas. In 41, the regular Goyim, 
Oh, my Lord. It, I tell you, the, the scenes are too hard, horrific to see. Poland made a movie. Poland. Three years ago. Kovalinia. It's a movie. Dramatization. And they told a story in World War II how the Ukrainians did this to the Polacks who lived in that area. <clears throat> in other words, what they did to the Jews in 41 and 42, they did to the Polish uh, in 42 and 43 uh, because they had racial uh, arguments between the two groups. So they ripped babies in half, they burned children, they, they uh, I tell you, it's a, a vivid movie. Again, you can't watch it unless you have a, a strong stomach, but it is true. I used it for some of my speeches. It is true. And even though it's a dramatization, you see what they did to the women, the men, and all the rest of it, because they chopped them up with farm implements and uh, it's, it pulled people apart with horses. It's unbelievable. So he actually got lucky. Nobody realized it at the time. He actually got lucky that Stalin arrested him and deported him. <laughs> because I'll tell you what I mean. If you were deported into the Soviet Union, not in the part of the Ukraine where the Galicianos were, but into Russia, Mamish, the Russians were not like this at all. It was bad being under the rule of the NKVD, obviously, and it's a nightmare of its own, of course, to live under Stalin, particularly during World War II. It's better than being in the Ukraine. It's better than being under Hitler. And so our hero spent the war, the, um, in other words, not long after he was deported, Hitler invaded this whole area, and then all the Jews got killed there and got killed in horrible ways, torture ways. Our hero was safe. He and his wife and daughter, I think it was one daughter with him or something like that. Uh, and they went to uh, Ekaterinburg in Sverdlovsk, which is the city where they shot the Tsar and his family. And it's at the beginning of Siberia. In other words, not, I mean, Russia is gigantic, you know. But in other words, they didn't deport him all the way to the Pacific Ocean or anything like that. He took him like the Ural Mountains and, uh, and so forth, Sverdlovsk. Uh, now it's called Katrinburg, Katrinslav. And you know, it was there Chaim Berlin, Chaim Berlin was there in the 19th century. And I mean, it's a city. Now, these are uh, slave labor camps. But wait a minute, it's 1941, so our hero is 60 years old. Uh, if he's 60 years old and not in great health, as you can imagine, he did not have to work. Isn't that amazing? Because of his health and whatever. He just was stuck there with his family, but he himself is not a slave laborer. So in a weird way, and I don't want this to be misunderstood, he had a good time. What do I mean when I say a good time? You're, you escaped Hitler. You're in Russia. You, it's very little food, but you get some food. Right? I mean, every day was a struggle for food. But you get some food. And basically, you don't have to do it. You, you, I don't want to be misunderstood, but it's a retirement home. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Now, if you're him, you just sit and learn all day long, at least mentally. I think he had like one safer with him or something like that, and also a uh, Nefesh Chaim. It's all these stories. Serious, I'm serious about this. But in 41, 42, uh, during these years, when a couple hundred miles to the west, back in Lemberg, these places, the Jews were undergoing Shechita and Tevicha and Tenufa. It's, it was just terrible. Uh, he was uh, safe. Here, let me uh, hold it for a second. Uh, I had to switch this. <clears throat> um, so anyway, I know it sounds funny, uh, but it's it, and it is funny, but you know, in a strange way. 
He was able, therefore, to be spared the Holocaust. Um, now, people died all around from malnutrition. And uh, you get the winter over there, uh, you know, the Siberian winter and so forth. But I'll say it again. It's kind of strange. I mean, he was sitting there with other Jews. He's the natural Rav <laughs> by personality. What the from people like to say is he poskin everything by heart because he knew all the books by heart. And I guess that's true. Um, he somehow or other, when opportunity presented itself, found out if any of his students or anybody knows is alive somewhere else in Russia and tried to, you know, maintain contact with them. Um, it was a strange existence. And you had to be very circumspect because at the end of the day, you don't want to call too much attention to yourself. It is a communist country. Uh, to be perfectly honest, in 1941 and 42, Stalin was so surprised by the German attack and had his hands so full with the German problem, he didn't pay much attention to the Jews. I mean, whoever was in one of these slave labor camps was just screwed. And if you had to work as a slave laborer, I mean, that would have killed him in a minute. There are many famous Rabbonim and Rosh Hashivas and Mashkichim and that sort of thing who were arrested by the Russians, as he was, who were made to work in slave labor camps. It was too much for them between the winter and the malnutrition and the heavy work and all the rest. Of, and they died. You understand? Now, it wasn't exactly like Hitler. They simply worked to death. But, you know, the, the Russians didn't care. Uh, so he really is, is, is amazing, you know, that he got a food ration, all the rest of it. As somebody would say today, retired, pension, bad health. And therefore, he basically had time in his hands. It's famous if he had any little kid, he tried to teach him the olive base. You can imagine the type of person I'm describing, how he would act in the circumstances and try to, you know, encourage people and all the rest of it as much as he could. Now, he didn't know his kids were killed, not during the war he didn't. So you're just hoping for hope, everything will work out. He didn't know at that time exactly the proportions of the Holocaust because he's stuck, stuck in Russia. How would you know that? Uh, I don't think most people knew where he was. Now, after a year or so, or something like that, he was transferred because the politics is funny. Uh, he was Polish. Stalin grabbed half of Poland. But the part of Poland, listen closely, the part of Poland that Stalin grabbed was the part of Poland in which the population was primarily not Polish. That was Stalin's excuse. I'll give you an example. Say Lemberg, Lvov, in that area. I told you before, the Hamunam was Ukrainian. That's why the Ukrainians didn't like that movie, you know, were so uh, vicious to the Polish, because they're the rove, and they didn't like the Poles ruling them. You understand? So uh, Stalin's excuse, which Roosevelt and others bought, was, I'm only taking over parts of Poland which are not Polish. Uh, for example, Belarus. He took over parts of Belarus. Well, the population there is Belarusian. It's not Polish. The Polish were ruling them. Now, there's a certain amount of truth to this. My point is, so what happened to the Polacks, to the Polish citizens, including Jews, if you were there caught by Stalin in 1939, 40, 41? The answer is, you're in bad shape. They were deported to Siberia. Many died or barely, you know, struggled to survive like our hero. And uh, you were, what's the right word, on the enemy's list of the regime. However, in June of 41, Hitler surprised attacked Stalin. They were supposed to be friends, or you know what that means. And he, he pulled off a total surprise, by the way, which is shocking. And the Russians were overwhelmed and lost a lot of battles in the beginning. At that point, this is before America was in the war, but England was already in the war. 
At that point, when he's attacked by Hitler and is losing, Stalin needs to buddy up to England and to America because uh, he needs their help, and they gave him help. I would have, in fact, you screwed Poland, you stuck him in the back. Well, well, <laughs> like that. Stalin said, I guess, I wasn't against Poland. I was just taking from Poland the parts that are not Polish. But I actually like Poland. I love Poland. And um, I will now change my policy and make a deal with the Polish government in exile. And uh, we should all be together fighting the Germans. And so he did a U-turn uh, for for cynical reasons. <clears throat> this is a very complicated subject. I'm just giving the basics. And if you were Polish like our hero, uh, then you were treated better after June of 41. Get it? Because uh, now you're a member of an allied group. And... Um, you were te you were sent to better conditions. Now, what's better conditions under Stalin? Even in good times, they're starving, but relatively speaking. And so, uh, by the way, you know who also benefited from this? Menachem Begin. Uh, he was Polish. He was arrested. He was sent to a slave labor camp for a couple months. But then all of a sudden, after June of 41, they said, oh, all the Polish can leave, and uh, you can join the Polish army and go fight with the British. So notice Stalin paid... <laughs> this is funny. He paid... For Begin's train service from Soviet Union to Tel Aviv. This is literally true. So, you know, the, as they say, as the British on Vilchistaveso, you know, anything's possible. Now, in the case of our hero, who was just an old rabbi, he was in the 60s, so he was transferred, uh, as many Polish refugees had been, to Bukhara, to Uzbekistan. In other words, all the way in, in Asiatic Russia. Uh, much south, so it's a better climate. Uh, it's not Siberia anymore, and you're living in an area which is part of the Stalin Empire, Uzbekistan, Bukhara. You know, Bukharan Jews. I mean, that's not Russians over there, and they didn't want Russia there, but they were stuck under Stalin. And these type of places like Tashkent and Uzbekistan and Bukhara became centers of a lot of Jews, who are exactly what I said before. These are Jews who fled Hitler. Civilians and um, ran away from Lithuania, from Latvia, if you were lucky enough to do that, from Poland, if you were lucky enough to do that. And they spent the war years in uh, Central Asia and in Soviet Union. Now, they're far away from the fighting. Remember, the guy we're talking about is in the 60s. He's not for military material. And he's not a Russian. He's a Polish. And now being Polish is not in Avera, right? So you're not in a slave labor camp. And so he made the years, I think it was 42, 43, 44, and 45. Uh, in Bukhara. Now, uh, again, conditions are terrible. It's Stalin. Relatively speaking, they, these are the lucky ones. I have friends, you know, some good friends of mine, whose parents and grandparents went through this experience, spent the war in Tashkent, all the rest. Again, they had a hard time, and just getting food every day was hard, and so forth and so on. But they were incredibly lucky compared to the Jews who were stuck under Hitler. That's what happened with our hero. And this is how he survived the war. You know, there are all these mice. As, as, like I said before, you can imagine. Every chance he had, he would try to teach somebody. Every chance he had, he would try to organize a learning group. You know who it is, right? It does best to do for... for when possible, you put together kashras. When possible, you try to put together a mikvah. When, when possible, you try to bake matzahs, kadasa, kadin. You know what I mean. But still, it's under Stalin. Now, when the war finally ended... Um, so the question is, 
how are you going to get them out? Again, there's a lot of these stories. That's, there's so many lies mixed up over here. But he got, somehow or other, uh, he got out on an Iranian passport. Um, I'm not exactly sure how these stories work out. But he left. He crossed into Iran legally. Which means that... Um, I'll tell you the story as, as I basically understand it. Um, the Aguda, let's call it that, during the war, sent a representative to Iran. Why? Iran is on the border of Russia. Um, one of the things Stalin did was to say, if you have Jewish kids who are Polish, or even Gaish, if they're Polish, I don't want them. If they want to leave, they can go. Uh, this is unusual. No, this had to have been Soviet citizens born in Russia, they would have been stuck. But these are not. And I told you, the international situation was such in which it was the interest of Stalin to say that I'm good to the Polish. Um, he played a very sneaky game, and in the end, he won totally, took over all of Poland. But the Jews, I'm talking about, tried to take advantage of the sneakiness, if those things are possible. And, it, and you know, it, to some degree, it was possible. And um, when the war was over... Stalin did let the Polish Jews, not the Soviet-born Jews, go back to Poland, which the vast majority immediately hit the road and ran to Germany, which was under the American army, because from Germany you could get to America or to Palestine. You know, I don't blame them. Uh, you understand? That's what happened. And in 45, 46, maybe into 47, those years, the Russians would actually allow this. Eventually, the, 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 the Iron Curtain shut tight again, and you couldn't get out. So if you hopped around, you could get out during these years. In our case, the Aguda sent a Hasidic guy, I think his name was uh, Rabbi Levi, maybe, uh, who's a Polish guy who went to Palestine, and then they would send him. The reason I'm saying is, if you lived in Persia, in Iran, during the Second World War, oh, it's also complicated to explain. Iran is on the border of Russia, okay? and um, Or Soviet uh, Central Asia uh, at that time. And the Shah of Iran, uh, the original guy, Reza, he was a buddy with Hitler uh, and for various reasons. And as soon as Hitler attacked Stalin, one of the things Stalin did was invade uh, 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 Iran together with the British. They said, like this, we're not letting you know Iran uh, attack us also. They knocked out the Shah and they occupied the country. The upper half was occupied by Soviet Union. The southern half was occupied by British Army. So if you were working in World War II and you were part of the occupation of Iran, I mean, that was a good, cushy job because you didn't have to fight the Germans. Um, and Tehran was like in the middle, which is why the Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin met in Tehran in 1943, which is kind of stupid, but that's what they did because um, it was controlled by their armies. So the reason I'm mentioning this is if you're a Jewish Polish refugee, you can possibly get out like Begin during the war years. You get into Persia, but then what? So the Jewish agency, the Sochnut, the Zionists, had a whole office to try to get them at that time to Palestine. I remember they sent a ship which was torpedoed by the Germans and things like that. It's a crazy story. But, uh, you know, you can theoretically get to Palestine by land from Iran. You just take a train across Iraq which also was occupied by the British Army, um, and Syria, which was occupied by the British Army, into Palestine. You could do it. And many did. 
This is a famous episode, but it's called the Alday Tehran. Remember, you probably heard about that, where they had these kids where they accused the Zionists of um, getting a hold of these boys and girls who were just what I described, were orphans and were kicked out by Stalin or released by Stalin during the middle of the war and got into Iran. And then the Jewish agency, the Sachnut, took them over and they had Madrichim who were anti from They tried to anti from them. The whole famous incident. But that's the world of Iran. And so the Agudah sent their guy over there. And he, Rabbi Levi, he's the one who started the Otsar Torah in Iran. And uh, he arranged with the Shah, somehow or other, as a personal favor, to get our hero, like a diplomatic passport, to get out of the country. And that's how he got out of the country, I think in 46, 45 or 46, while it was possible to do so. Um, I heard a story once from Beryl Wine that, you know, a student of his who had kicked out of Yeshiva was the one who took him there. I don't know if that's true. You know, a lot of mices of these sorts. Uh, the plain push-up shot is what I just described. And so he wanted to get out of Russia. Who doesn't? And he got out legally. So he crossed over from Soviet Union into Iran. Um, I think it was 45. Maybe it was 46. Yeah, end of the war. And when he was in Iran, I remember... Uh, he was in Tehran, and he can't speak Persian, and the Iranian Jews can't speak uh, Yiddish, of course. And uh, <laughs> to try to have a Sephardi Hebrew with a Galiciano Hebrew is a challenge, let's put it that way. Uh, but some rich um, family, I forget who it was, in Tehran, they took him in, they said, you can use our house and all the rest of it. And now the word got out that uh, he escaped the war. And Ralph Herzog, the chief rabbi of Israel, visited Iran because he was looking for, uh, he spent years after the war of Herzog looking for kids that had been kidnapped by Goyim or lost in the course of war, Jewish kids, and we can rescue them and bring them to, to Israel, to Palestine. Uh, and when he was in Tehran, he heard about the, the Chabin Arov, and he went to talk to them and learn again, like, whoa, <laughs> who is this? Now, Rav Herzog was a giant gong, so you can just imagine it was like the two of them you know, hockey and learning, and he immediately said, I guess, whoa, this guy's a diamond, and we, I'm going to get him to Palestine. And he came back to Israel, and he said, this guy gets priority, jumped at head of the list. And that's how he got a ticket, a certificate, to uh, leave with his wife and daughter to come to Israel from Iran in 46, I think it was, which means he took a train to um, Turkey, and then took a boat from Turkey to Haifa. It's a strange route. Right? They came there to Israel and he survived. Now, by the way, he's a chassid. The first thing he did, this is amazing. First thing he did was go to Tel Aviv and, you know, whoever was the Rebbe that he was attached to, um, the Husiatin dynasty, he went to go to the Rebbe's Tish. Which is amazing because he himself was like a world gone. So I just took you through three distinct periods of his life and these are the fate of the Galtiana Jews. The first years, till he was like 38, or so, were golden years when it was under Franz Josef and he was rich and and uh, and famous and yeah, he had a Torah duel with Malcolm Echad, Olam Hazen, Olam Haba. The second period when he had to become a rabbi, but then he became a very successful rabbi, a posik and a Rosh Hashiva in the 20s and 30s. And then the third period when he was under Stalin, which he was lucky, you get it? All those who were not under Stalin, I mean, many died under Stalin, but those who were under Hitler, you know what that was like, okay? And I'll tell you again, if you're talking about Eastern Poland, the Ukrainians, 
usually didn't even get to Hitler. Get it? The locals killed you. Uh, it's terrible. By the way, they show that in the movie, how the Ukrainians you know, bashed in people's head of Jews. <laughs> All which is absolutely true. So now, he lost his kids. He lost his yeshiva. He lost them. No, it's a Sabrachana. And I think, if I remember correctly, um, if I remember correctly, uh, he had a stroke uh, in Tehran, you know, when all this hit him, which, again, you can, a mini stroke, so, you, you know, you can sort of understand. But he and his wife finally made it to Israel, and they moved to Yerushalayim. Uh, but in some respects, 46, 47 may not have been the best time in the world to move to Yerushalayim, because in late 47 uh, came the Arab-Israeli War. Uh, the UN Declaration of uh, Palestine and Israel the partition was in uh, late November '47. The next day, started shooting and killing in Yerushalayim and the rest of Israel. And I remember, excuse me, I remember he had a couple of students that were shot by Arabs and killed and things like that. So you can, you know, you can imagine you know, what's happening over there. Nevertheless, the rest of his life, the last twenty years, let's say, or nineteen years of his life, was in Yerushalayim. And here, you know, you just have a completely different existence than you had in Soviet Russia. And so here, you might say he was able to recover from his wounds. I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I mean. And he found himself in a Mokham Torah. Because Yerushalayim of old, we're talking about Rechavi, Shari Chesed, uh, you know, those neighborhoods. Uh, it's from neighborhoods. You had Gedolim over there. And you can read their books if you're interested in that. The Hagiographies, which are partially true. And you see all the Gedolim held from Mavel. Of course that's true. Now, uh, a guy like this is Kulo learning. He wasn't the Aguda, but it's Kulo learning. One of the nice stories is that um, he came to Yerushalayim, and like one of the first people he ran into was an old interlocutor of his, uh, Ramashom Roth, who was a big gun in um, Bukovina and in, in Chernowitz in Hungary. He was a big, big Gedolin, but he was a Mizrahi. He was a weirdo in that regard. If you look at a picture of him, he looks like a Nagoda guy. He was a big Mizrahist. That's how he survived the war. The Sachnot got him out in 43 or 44 to Palestine because of Herzog said, we need some heavy hitters to handle all the Agunashilas that are coming our way. And he's like a heavy hitter, which he was. So here you have our hero, who was Agoda, Agoda, Agoda. And um, and you have the other guy, the Shon Roth, uh, who was Mizrahi, Mizrahi, Mizrahi. But as soon as they saw each other, they said, oh, I haven't seen you in 12 years. And they immediately picked up and learning where they where they left off in the last conversation, which was about the Shiloh of the Tefillin in the hospital, you know, if they know you're going to burn it when, when the typhus is over. And, you know, the moms start hocking exactly where they picked up, which is a great story because it means politics is one thing, but Torah is something different. And one nothing to do with the other. There are two people who came who were very close friends, and they remained very close friends the rest of their lives, who completely disagreed on politics. One was a Zionist, Mishon Roth has the Kolmavasar to say for, you know, the Jewish Kolmavasar. He has a whole hetter for saying Hallelujah and the Yom Asmut and all that stuff. And here we have our hero, who was very different, but the learning is the learning. Right? Uh, I'm saying this now at a politically correct time. Last week was a big tragedy in Meron. And one of the things they're taking out of this, all the smart people are saying, listen, you know, stop the um, the Pirud. You know what I mean? Stop the Pirud. Stop the knocking one or the other. Uh, that's how he was. Now, in politics, he was completely different. And as the state of Israel came to be in 1948, he became a big 
factor in the political issues of the Agoda in the early years of the State of Israel, which you and I know now that we have hindsight of, what is it? Um, is it 70 years? Yeah, it's more than 70 years. More than 70 years. Uh, in hindsight, if I can use this expression, the Agoda won, not Ben-Gurion. Um, because look what Israel's turned into. Now, I don't have to bore you with all the details, you know, Chinech the Gius Nashem, Gius Banos, all those sorts of things. Uh, he was a part of that, and he became part of Moses Gedolia Torah. Obviously, his main goal is going to be, first of all, now he can sit and learn. I mean, now he was in a in a Disneyland, because whatever you want to say about Israel, it's all Jewish. And uh, in the years I'm talking about, from 48 war on, once the fighting stopped in Jerusalem with the Jordanians, so there are no Arabs. You understand what I'm saying? You go to Israel today, wherever you go, you see Arabs. Because they're working as employees, or this, that, and the other. In the Israel of Ben-Gurion's time, there were no Arabs. There was a border uh, from the fighting. Uh, there were Arabs in the north, but they were under like a military dictatorship. The Tzahal wouldn't let them go out of their, their villages. And uh, you didn't see them. You get it? Always rare exceptions. So from his point of view, uh, and a lot of these Gedolim who escaped the war, you know, they didn't want to see any Goyim. That's how they, you know, they had it up to here. I remember the Belzer Rebbe, and... Our hero was close with the Belzer Rebbe. As you can imagine, everybody held from him because he was such a gum. And um, he had that Bacchus, the super Bacchus. Uh, but not just as a bucky, not like as a machine. You know, he could fire from here to there. If you ever see his farm, you see that's exactly what he does. You ask the Shalf Mir, he brings you some rye from somewhere total, like you would never think about it. That's his style. Uh, but all these people, like the Bells of Rebbe, when he came to Israel, he moved to Tel Aviv and not to Jerusalem. Why did he move to Tel Aviv? He said, I want a city that's all Jewish. I don't see a guy move your slime. There's churches everywhere and so forth. I just want to see Jews. Not from, from I don't care. It's after the Holocaust. I don't care. I just want to see Yidden. Right? It's interesting. So he was like that. And he spent, as they say, the next 20 years doing what all these people did, which is they tried to rebuild their, what they had before. So he had a yeshiva in Chabin, which was all killed out. So now they tried to rebuild it, and they built. They did rebuild it. You know, she was Kochav Yaakov, uh, which is named after his father, Safer. Uh, but they called it Shabin. Um, I knew one or two people that went there, but it became you know. And he tried to do it his particular style. Uh, it's part of the Yeshiva world, as it were. And he became, I I would say, he became one of many because once he had this Moses Gedolia Torah in the fifties and sixties. You know, so there are all these, you know, Cheskel Sarn, you know, Punisher Rob. You know what I mean? There's a whole collection of big rabbis uh, in the state of Israel. Uh, he would be from more Hasidic branch, but I want to repeat, he was a Hasidic Rav. He was not a Hasidic Rebbe. And so, um, so he went to somebody else's tish. He didn't have a tish of his own. Um, and that's not who he was. His, his style was more, you know, He'd love if he came and talked and learning, and I can bring a riot to you, I can bring a, a, a contradiction to you. And he republished his original volume in, they published in the 30s, and then he has volume two and three. Uh, he has a certain style, as we all know. I'm not a Bucky in the uh, in the uh, Dovah Misharm. I know a little bit. Uh, the famous ones, is, for somebody like me, the famous one that I know of is um, about the ice. You know, he says he can't make the ice on Shabbos. I said he's he's like the big guy in that. Uh, now others disagree, but I'm just saying, if you want the the chubu, 
they can't make ice or anything like that on Shabbos in the freezer. That's a joke. It's like a very famous uh, word of his. His whole Chalkas Yaakov disagrees with him, but it doesn't matter. Um, I also know, and uh, yeah, I had to do that. Separate from that, I happen to know, uh, I'll tell you just an interesting story. Um, happen to know another uh, Dovid Misham because of my situation. Um, I'm in a show in Baltimore, which is, they call it by Hertzberg Show. It was founded by Rabbi Tzvi Elemental Hertzberg long ago. And he was a Galaxy honor and a Belzer. And the Belzer Row, by the way, in the 20s, used to send these guys to be tested by the Chabina Row. Uh, you know, he held from a belt. Which is understandable. And so Rabbi Hertzberg, I'm sure, had Shaykhis with him before he came to America in the 20s. Uh, you know, at that time, I told you, it was a hot item in Galicia, one of the biggest Ga'onim. And so the rabbi, who used to be in my shoulder, this is a big rabbi, Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Hertzberg, he has a shayla in the Dove Misharm in the third volume from 1957 from Baltimore, Maryland, with no names. And it seems there's a non from couple, and it's a lady, she was Jewish and husband a guy. So the baby born... Is um, is Jewish halachically, but the question is, the baby was born on Saturday, so can you do the bris on Saturday? Which is a famous shaila of of. It's one of those questions around there, and the question goes like this: uh, uh, We say you go by the mother, but there are opinions that say that if um, she had a child by a guy or something like this, the the Jewish identity is questionable. Now we paskin, of course, that mother is Jewish, the baby is Jewish, but it's not so simple. Um, some hold that the baby is tarch geiris. Now, that means there's a tzad that the baby's not Jewish, in which case you're not allowed to perform the bris on Saturday, correct? So it's one of those shilas, and he hocks, so he sent it to the Chabina Rog, who brings all these shilas, and it was very interesting, Achiezer, and the Beis Yitzchok, and uh, oh, this one, that one, the other one. Uh, this is a well-known question about, uh, sometimes they talk in this context of mumrim. Can you go and perform the bris of a non-from couple? Or uh, let's put it this way, an anti-from couple, Mumrim, on Saturday, on Shabbos, right? Because of these reasons, because in some hold that a Mumrim is not Jewish. You know, now, again, we don't pass this way, but at least as far as worrying about Shabbos, not to do it, because do it on Sunday. That's all. Do it on Sunday. Uh, I know Esa Dechalos is saying all that do on Shabbos, but that's perhaps that's only when it's a, 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 a baby with no Shabbos whatsoever about the Jewish identity. But as a baby, with some shilas whatsoever about the Jewish identity, don't do it in Shabbos. That's the question. And by the way, it's interesting. I don't know who the couple is, obviously, but the Chabiner says the, the the couple you're describing is just not from. Uh, they don't keep Shabbos. They don't keep nothing. So the kid's not going to be raised from. So I don't. Uh, so don't do it on Saturday. It's just interesting. I happen to know that because of my show. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but I don't know all the uh, Dovid Misharms and all the rest. I'm sure they're all interesting each in its own way. Uh, because these are questions in volume 2 and 3 from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, that's closer to our times. Um, now, he eventually built this yeshiva. Uh, his two son-in-laws survived. Uh, Schneerson was one. I forget the other one. Uh, you know, some of the others didn't. And the sons didn't. So, you know, obviously, a person like this was Sebrachan. If you read the stories of the Chabiner in Yerushalayim, he comes across like a saint. Because anybody who was a Godel who survived the war has this attitude. Anyone who went through the war is a Kodesh Kodashim, and the Yidden are the Yidden. They try to be nice to them. And they're actually very nice stories. Um, 
very nice stories about how he treated people from and not from after the war. I remember there was a guy who had no voice, but he thought he was a great chazan, and everybody told him, get the heck out of here, and he went to the Shabbat Oh, and the Shabbat said, oh, I'd love to hear you sing. Oh, you like to hear me sing? I'll give you an hour concert, <laughs> you know, and things like that. And the person we're talking about, this God will, you know, like to learn all the time, but anybody had any questions or any tsaris, immediately take off the time, you know, from the learning to talk to you. Yeah. Like I say, if you get the biographies, the in my opinion, the nicest parts are the parts how he interacts with people after the war was over. Because, uh, like I said before, he's just glad to see Jews, and he knows what everybody went through. And um, what can I tell you? You know, uh, you have to be a human being in all this. You have to be a human being. It's interesting. And he got to see, therefore, the beginning of the, uh, what's the right word, reconstitution of the from world, because that's the story of the last 70 years. He got to see the Shiva start to build up again, and with, with the Chinuch and Eretz Yisrael, you know, to build up slowly but surely. So I guess in that regard, you know, he had a uh, uh, good time, but I'm sure also uh, you, people like this get nightmares. What happened to my kids? When, and his kids were Eluium themselves. What happened to the people in my town? What happened to people I knew? And all these other Gedolim who didn't make it. He was a survivor. Right? That's not all he was. He was a survivor. Now again, he was a survivor who had the good fortune to escape to Stalin. You know? Now, as hard as that was, and that was terribly hard also. Oh, there are stories, you know, he had these guys bake masa for him, then the NKVD arrested them, and he said, who's the one who told you? And they went telling them, and they poured boiling water on these guys, and they died in horrible agony from pouring boiling water. You know, there's many, many stories involved in this. If you want to go and get the details, you have to get a bio of the um, of the Shabina Rub. There's a good one, uh, which is fairly accurate, Sarah Torah. In English and Hebrew, um, I can't you know spend hours on this, but uh, I just want to give you a flavor of of someone who represented, as I would say today, the um, the best part of the Galtzianer world. Uh, you know, all all, all, all kidding aside, uh, this Torah Gedul and Makamecha, not only wealth, but you know, uh, style, classy, in the best sense of the word, refined. You know, he likes other Jews. You know what I mean? Um, there's people like this that, you know, that that, that um, left this, uh, made like a glorious legacy. I don't think we know so most people don't know so much about this world. Uh, I don't think most people are familiar with the Chazel Nachum or something like that, or the Dovid Misharim, or uh, or a lot of these type, a lot of these type of swarm that came out from that milieu, which is actually very rich material, uh, but it's not on the regular beaten path they find in the in the regular bookstores. I'm sure in the Hasidic one, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe not. The Dove Misharm comes out once in a while. But not so much. Uh, and uh, it's a, it, it, and you really see uh, over here what Hitler destroyed. Let's put it that way. What Hitler destroyed. So um, I think in that regard, it's a very, um, what's the right word, moving story. And he had four different eras in his life. You know, that's the story of Polish Jewry. Uh, the Franz Josef years, the interwar years, the Holocaust years, and then the State of Israel years. And you really see, as as as, as bad, whatever you want to say about the State of Israel, Ben-Gurion and all the rest of it, they created like a haven. You understand, if you know how to use it, they create a haven for all this uh, Torah stuff. 
and they and, and most importantly they created a haven where it's it's a it's it's a nor yidden. You understand? Um, what he lived through in the forties, fifties, and sixties was a situation he didn't have in Poland. In Poland, wherever he lived, the majority of his town were Polish. But when he's there in Israel, especially in his time, like I said, before sixty-seven, he died in sixty-five. Yerushalayim, they were like all Jews in his part of Jerusalem. The city was divided in half. The old city was under the Arabs, but in his part, it was all Jews. Uh, this must have been just very interesting for that generation. Anyway, I've spoken long enough. And with that, once again, I want to thank the uh, Elbaums uh, for sponsoring this and uh, Heather's family and the Neshama of Grandfather Shavalia. And now you get a little bit of idea of uh, where your ancestors come from. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.